You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people, and we are broadcasting to the Kulin Nations. Our focus is economics, that is, how stuff is produced and distributed. We recognise that for many tens of thousands of years, First Nations people's connection to country successfully embodied the world's oldest continuous economy, which was catastrophically disrupted by genocide and displacement. We acknowledge that we have much to learn to reshape our current extractive and exploitive system to achieve sustainable prosperity for everyone. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Welcome to Radio MMT. Anne, how are you this week? Hello, Kevin. Good to see you. And hello to our lovely listener, whether you are Larry or Larissa or both or neither. Uh, Back in July, you and I attended a conference in Melbourne called Eco-Socialism 2023, which was sponsored by 3CR Radio as well as Socialist Alliance and others to see if I could understand more about this curious disinterest and and sometimes outright antagonism that socialists seem to have for modern monetary theory. Uh, So while I was there, I managed to speak with several conference goers. And as you'll hear, I met many lovely people who are grappling with this existential multiple crises faced by humanity. Yeah, we we hold a lot of similar um, views and attitudes to the people uh, that we met at the Eco-Socialism Weekend. Uh, It seems that we we all want to try and achieve the same things, but like any good group of lefties, how we achieve it, there's a a great disparity of views. And uh, lefties, lefties always tend to end up arguing a lot more. And look, maybe I'm biased, but I think conservatives are focused on one thing. How do we make more money? Uh, as lefties, we have all sorts of concerns about you know, inclusion, distribution, mm-hmm. uh, the environment, um, and all the species, etc. And that's a very complicated uh, discussion. And there are many different ways of um, trying to figure out how to achieve that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I think I found some places of overlap and then some places of disagreement. Um, and so we managed to speak with Jacob Andrew Wather, who co-hosts a program called Green Left Radio here on 3CR. And he was gracious enough to give us some of his time and put up with my very basic questions about socialism. Uh, but first, let's hear from some eco-socialism conference attendees. So it is the 1st of July 2023 and I am here at the Eco-Socialism Conference. So can I just get your first name and what inspired you to come along today? So my name is Mayura and um, 
I think this is a very important conference um, given the timing of uh, the war drive on China and also the ongoing climate crisis that we're living in and where um, you see um, the powerful of the country where their interests lie um, and talking about the issue of war within the context of the climate crisis which is what I think this conference is doing is, a, is an important way I think have a more enriching dialogue about where we are at and what needs to be done and where our priorities lie. My name's Nick and I've been active in the socialist movement for over 30 years. It's really great to hear from people who are active and to make those connections when you come to things, get re-inspired, um, yeah, find out what's going on in the world and, and um, help change it. My name's Janet and I've come to the conference uh, from Perth. It's just so fantastic to be present at a conference with other like-minded people um, where we can actually you know, hang out and spend time together and talk and chat and exchange ideas and campaign ideas. My name's Grant and I was inspired to come along today because I think that um, uh, the world's pretty fucked. You're not <laughs> and... the first person to use that word. <laughs> yeah, uh, and um, you know, I've got children and maybe grandchildren and I think uh, it's important that... Uh, we think seriously and deeply about the issues that confront the world and do something about it. Joe. Joe. Hi, Joe. Um, I just have a curiosity about some of the topics that were being uh, presented here and looking for a little hope. Uh, my name's Neville, and yeah, many of the issues at the conference I'm interested in you know, international politics, uh, inequality, um, the environment. Um, all the things that are being covered. My name's Suzanne and a friend of mine invited me from Adelaide so I came here and um, nothing will change unless people fight for it. So I think what this conference is um, doing bring, is bringing people together to get an idea of how to move forward as progressives on the left and work towards a socialist future and an environmentally sustainable future. So my name's Jonathan, I'm from Cairns, so certainly one of the things is actually having a very broad range of discussion. I've been involved for a few decades now in the movement, but there's still heaps to learn, and um, I'm learning today. the conference is eco-socialism and there is a keynote speech about degrowth. What does it look like to get to a post-capitalist or a post-carbon economy or um, into a degrowth economy? All of those words are sort of floating around and I just wondered if you have any sense of where we're headed. I think I liked his idea of looking for radical alternatives and the idea is not to find a homogenous universal solution but it's to really connect struggle and find um, multiple ways to address this crisis because I don't think there is a single solution. Having a system which is collective and shared and dialogical I think that's where the solutions will come from. In Australia we don't listen to our indigenous people enough and they have been you know, living in harmony with nature and land for you know, thousands of years, and yet we have silenced that knowledge. 
Um, so it's really finding the way to leverage this voice that's been silenced systematically and bring it to the forefront. I don't have a solution really, but I think it starts with um, conscious decision to unlearn and relearn along with those on the margins maybe. So what's your vision of where we're trying to get to? Well, I think what's really important about events like this is to start imagining that and, and debating it because it's probably not very clear. There's been no country has been able to do it or you probably can't do it in a single country. Like Cuba's um, at one point got recognised as the only country in the world that reached actual sustainability. So, I mean, there's lessons there, but I think the, the debate really needs to uh, happen. We can't have a perfect blueprint or, or anything. We can't start imagining a future that's realistic and attractive to people that's better than the very alienated and exploited existence we have now. We're not, we're not going to have a, a mass movement that can actually bring it about. Fundamentally, we, we're, we're fighting for a world that meets human need, but in, in the context of also being able to preserve our, our environment in which we live and upon which we rely. So, you know, capitalist industrialisation has just accelerated the pace of growth and of pollution and of destruction, you know, in that period from World War II on, has been at a far greater rate than ever before. We, we have to be looking at ways that we can um, decrease our consumption, improve our quality of life, you know, at the moment, you know, we're obliged to use cars because public transport is poor. We're, um, we're encouraged to buy consumer goods that actually we don't really need. We're, we're encouraged to change our clothing or our fridge or our washing machine or our furniture on a regular basis because it's no longer fashionable. All of that is creating this massive waste and... Um, I think that, that is driven by advertising and capitalism and the need to create profit. Uh, and I think in a different society where our focus is more on, on the, the quality of life that people are living, then a lot of those things would actually be less appealing. I think a lot of people are worried that it's going to mean a decrease in their standard of living. Mm. Um, do you have any sense of what it might look like? I think that it's an error to try and make a plan for what such a society will look like. I honestly believe though, when we think deeply about uh, the things that mean things to us in our everyday life, they come to mind immediately. Like enjoying lunch together, being the family, all around the values of sharing. I mean, people at this conference might call it solidarity. The enjoyable things of life aren't about economic growth. Right. They're about human growth. If somehow collectively, through gatherings like this, we can begin to get, I think, a feeling for that, I think then the motivation comes and then the action comes. At this point in my thinking, degrowth is the only way forward. Capitalism has completely fucked us mm -hmm. and yet its claws are deep into everything, including my psyche. I, I don't know exactly what it looks like, but we have to use less. We have to be satisfied with less and do more of it ourselves, I guess. Capitalism is ever-expanding. That's just not rational at all. 
Dr. Kohei Sato, who is the keynote speaker, does um, have a talk and a book about degrowth. Uh, do you have a sense of what a post-growth or a degrowth economy might look like, or, or what even post-capitalism or a post-carbon economy might look like? Where are we headed? Yeah, degrowth, in some, in some ways I find the term a little bit confusing because it's, well, the term growth is very confusing. Um, it's always sort of bandied about as if it's meant to be something good, it'll benefit everyone. It isn't questioned, it's supposed to be just automatically good. Um, and some of it is, but some of it's bad. So even things destroying the environment and clean up the mess, it's all economic activity, so it's all growth. So military spending, all sorts of harmful things are counted as growth. So I think the problem is that we live in a capitalist society which is based on making profits anyway possible. You can have a lot of uh, very dangerous and harmful and with climate change possibly catastrophic growth so is that how we would define capitalism then that it's um, profit motivated i think that's probably the essential element is that yeah everything has to be built around you know making a profit out of something and providing goods and services to people that's just that's just a side effect of the effort to make profit so it would be a society not dependent on the profit motive and on collective democratic decision-making about um, what gets produced and why. And I think there's variations of what a socialist economy would look like. I don't think you can have a, an entire blueprint in advance, but I, I guess just the general idea is that things would be planned and so would be based around democratic decision-making, not decision-making by profit-making businesses. I mean, how would you sell it to people who say, well, this all sounds to me like we're heading in for um, a, a lower standard of living and for the government interfering in our lives? Um, well, on the lower standard of, of living, um, a lot of things that are done in society um, that uh, don't need to be done... <laughs> Producing fossil fuels, uh, producing lots of military equipment. Uh, all My favourite is built-in obsolescence. Goods. Yeah, that, that's a, that's <laughs> another big one. Yeah, yeah. All those things that we can do without. Without know, we, lowering our standard of living. That's right. Yeah, they contribute nothing to our standard of living. In fact, sometimes take it backwards. So we could accept a lower standard of living and just have more leisure time or something like that. That's an option too. So that sounds horrible. <laughs> kind of a future is that? <laughs> Spending more time with our loved ones. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're pointing to capitalism as the site of all our troubles. Do you have a sense of what a degrowth economy might look like or what a post-carbon or post-capitalist economy might look like? Like, where are we headed in an ideal world? Oh, an equal society where there is um, an equal distribution of resources, um, where the global south is uh, developed like the global north and um, where we are able to change into a degrowth world um, because everyone is developed enough. What does, what does degrowth mean to you? Capitalism is all about growth. You know, you can't have capitalism without growth. So degrowth to me means a steady state society. You can actually have a sustainable society that is steady 
rather than continually growing. Mm. It's when you have enough for everyone, you don't have to keep producing more. You produce what's needed and no more, and everyone has a good quality of life. Well, I think socialism, most of all, is actually about our own self-empowerment. We have power if we're organised. And so a lot of socialist politics is about, firstly, the need to act, and secondly, the, the need to organise. I actually don't think it's going to reduce our sanity. In fact, I think our quality of life will be far better in terms of redistribution across the globe. There will be real gains in material goods. But what we're going to do is totally change the way they're produced. We look at producing better goods. We look at producing stuff that lasts. We look at producing things by using electricity that is produced renewably. We look at um, having the time to travel rather than rushing everywhere mm. in terms of the kinds of transport we use. We look at having systems that are public systems, not private, individualised systems like public transport systems. It's, it's actually almost back to the old phrase replacing private affluence and public squalor. So instead we need, need public affluence. Convert the wealth that we have today into a public wealth shared by all. Most people's lives will improve tremendously. You just probably won't get a lot of time on super yachts. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I love it. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet. www.3cr.com .org.au The show that I'm with is called Radio MMT, so we, we follow modern monetary theory, MMT. So it's basically the plumbing of how the money system works. So I'll ask you my MMT question. I guess what we're talking about here is making a transition. So I'm wondering how you see that we would pay for this. Um, in, in terms of the immediate solution, we we divert investment to more sustainable and renewable forms of running the economy and society. Um, I think investing more in education and health rather than, you know, mining. Yeah, I think it's reprioritizing where we spend um, money. I think that's one way to go about it. So having more ethical spending and more accountability um, on our government on how they spend for social needs and social services. There's going to be quite a transition and I'm wondering if you have a sense of how we're going to find the money to pay for the transition. Yeah, that, that's, that's often brought up and I think, the, um, I think obviously a lot of things need to be reduced or eliminated that are, that are socially useless or destructive like car transport and so on. But we need more of other things like public transport and health and so on. So I'm just, um, yeah, just interested in whether the term degrowth fits in or, or how it's best to explain that to people, saying we don't want to go and live in a cave and, and not have uh, advanced technology. We need more of that and, and better services. I, I suppose on the more immediate level, that's all about progressive taxation. I think that we have the resources to... Um, put into uh, social services. Uh, I don't think we don't have enough money. I think it's there. Um, there's no scarcity in Australian society. So uh, it's just a matter of where you allocate the money that you've got and making it um, serve the people rather than the um, owners of capital. So I'm hearing you say that we can have growth, but maybe of the good things in life and less growth of shopping malls. That's right, how about human growth? 
wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how do you see us being able to pay for any kind of transition that we might make? Like, how are we going to afford it? How? Well, first of all, we have to afford it. I think the economic model is all wrong. You know, what, what is money and what's it for? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's... Uh, I'm glad you asked. I'm actually with a show called Radio MMT, Modern Monetary Theory. Oh, is this is right? what we look at. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's the, that's the trick question, because we say that anything that is doable is affordable, because the Australian Federal Government can never run out of Australian dollars. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? The, what is a dollar note? It just floats around like like uh, um, oil in an engine, doesn't it? Really, I suppose. And uh, the job of, in this case, I think we're talking about as governments, it's their job to uh, to push that resource, yes. which is really only people's labour. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. That's right. Is to push it around the system. Yes. I think once you grasp that kind of idea which is so obvious and plain as the noses on our faces, once that's grasped and understood, some of the practical things will become rather obvious. That's what I think anyway. I think um, there are many things that we outlay a lot of money on that are completely unnecessary. And this, this first session this morning is testimony to that where we talked about the $368 billion being spent on on submarines, nuclear submarines, um, which are not only very expensive but will also create further damaging waste. There's $350 million, I think, in the session I did this morning with Baruz Bushani um, uh, being spent just to maintain Nauru on an annual basis as a deterrent um, should further people come by boat seeking asylum. You know, there, there is so much waste that goes into policies of deterrence, of imprisoning people, um, of, of the privatising of, of services that historically have been done by the public sector much more cheaply and more efficiently, um, reframing what we think is important and having to actually redirect resources away from warmongering and, and um, subsidies to... Uh, all the fossil fuel companies, we know that these are things that need to go as quickly as possible. And yet, you know, government is so intent on pouring such huge sums of money. And meanwhile, we've got increasing numbers of people homeless. And, and yet we've got a whole lot of people investing in properties that sit empty all the time. And we've got, you know, vast tracts of money being spent on infrastructure off in Nauru and Manus and Christmas Island, which are sitting empty. And um, I have to ask you the MMT question, which is, if we're going to make a transition where we are providing more universal basic services, how are we going to pay for all that? Tax the rich. (laughs) Seriously, seriously, they've got a lot of money. It's the Robin Hood method. You go to people who have the money and you take it from them. They don't need that much anyway. But more seriously still is actually, yes, you transfer, I guess, the means of production, if you like, the factories and the farms and the generally speaking, go into public ownership. That public ownership could have some different forms. Maybe some people who do want to try some stuff themselves rather than the employees. There might be some of that small-scale ownership. But in general, the dominant areas of the economy... I mean, electricity, be publicly owned. See, money does two kinds of things for consumers as opposed to other kinds of things. It, um, 
It's a means of allocation, but it's also a means of rationing. If you don't have the money, you can't spend it. But in the case of public transport, we want people to stop using cars and use public transport instead, for example. Mm -hmm. We don't want to ration the use of public transport. Plus, which, of course, there are are things you don't have to do. You don't have ticketing systems, you don't have ticket checking systems, you don't have all kinds of things you have to do which involve the the use of money. And I guess you could say, yes, you could reduce all the money, extra money you want, but you don't actually necessarily produce more things. So really what we have to tackle um, is two things at once. Yes, bring the monetary system back under control so it serves us rather than works against us, and solving the problems of production and consumption so that we actually produce good lives. Do you see how we're going to be able to afford this, how we're going to pay for it? I think everything's on the downward spiral. I don't know. Nothing's going to be paid for. It's all just going to disintegrate completely. The disabled and the vulnerable minority groups are going to be the first to suffer. Money is, a, is not a thing, it's a legalised accounting mechanism, which means that the federal government can never run out of money. So who, whoever issues the dollars can never run out of the dollars because all they're doing is typing numbers into spreadsheets. So we always say that um, whatever is logistically doable, whether it's making fast trains between all the capital cities, whatever it is, if, if we've got the resources, we can always find the money. The money's not the issue. So that's kind of the MMT message. Yeah, Yeah, look, funny thing is money historically typically was a thing. Mm. It was gold or silver or bronze, copper. So it actually was a thing. We have a particular scenario where money is printed money. It still has a relationship to thing, but it's much more problematic. That is a source of speculation. It's a source of inflation. We have a slightly different answer with MMT, of course. (laughs) What we say is that money is not a commodity, it's not a thing. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's it's an accounting procedure that's been codified in law, so it's a legal and an accounting structure. So what that means is that the Australian federal government can never run out of Australian dollars. Mm -hmm. So the federal government can always find the dollars. So money's just a means to mobilise resources. If people ask me how would you pay for it, I would say, well, the usual way is that the um, parliament would instruct the treasury, which would instruct the central bank to type numbers into a spreadsheet, basically. Mm -hmm. That's how the government creates money to spend. I guess a lot of the the monetary system exists today to safeguard the interests of big businesses. we're always told that you can't spend on disability support because you need to spend on, I don't know, submarines. And so when you look at it like that, if you're in control of your money, um, why is it an issue? The idea, I guess, would be to move away from uh, exchange in terms of money. Ideally, in an ideal world, we get rid of, um, I think, the whole dollar value system. It's quite an oppressive system if you look at it historically it's a construct and uh, you know I feel like it's it exists to oppress and so I wouldn't know how uh, how it can be reformed reforming the system based on a, on a different idea of value I guess because today everything is based on the value of the dollar whereas I think a more just world would have a value that's not 
purely monetary based? Um, I suppose it's a very Marxist idea about what money is, that it's a bit magic, really. It's not real in itself, that it's a, a, a fetish in a religious sense, then that it's, um, it's not a thing in itself, but it represents the social relationships of power and ownership in society, and that's what's important. It's not, you know, governments can print more money and buy more stuff, and definitely we need to do that. You might still have some money around, at least for a long time. In the long run, we actually think people will develop habits of consumption that will actually tend to reduce and minimise the need for money because you'll be able to distribute things. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. I'm with the show on 3CR called Radio MMT and we're looking at modern monetary theory which talks about this idea that the Australian federal government can never run out of dollars. So I'm wondering if that kind of idea um, would impact the way you see the struggle to get to where we need to go. I suppose that's that's a little bit secondary to who's got power and how we address that. If it happens in a thorough way, like if we really had a systematic program of building more public transport, and also taxing rich people to pay for it, that would represent shifting power and wealth in society, which is the fundamental thing that we're, that we're aiming at. I think um, the range of really good policies, they're only really going to work if they're tied to a strategy of actually fundamentally changing the, the class forces and the relations of power and, and ownership in society. So MMT is saying to us, the Australian Federal Government can never run out of Australian dollars. We, we can reclaim what I call the public utility of the money system, um, but the question is having the, the political will to, to use it in the public good, and that's where socialism comes in. Yeah, look, and I think that's absolutely true. I have to say, though, there are things I think we should cut. <laughs> And, you know, they're, they're the very things that are destroying our planet. Fossil fuel um, subsidies, um, building prisons which dehumanise and brutalise people, um, offshore detention and, and imprisonment of people seeking asylum. Those things need to be abolished. Um, but I agree with you. I think, you know, a, a government can find the money um, that it wants, as we've witnessed with this huge drive to go to war. Uh, and as we saw during the Second World War, it can be done very quickly when they can, you know, transform factories and things, you know, in the space of months from one producing one thing to producing to producing bombs and tanks and um, light artillery and stuff. So, I mean, you know, the political will is a key question and without the political will, we're, we're doomed. Um, having said that, I, I don't ascribe to the doomed prophecy. I, I think, you know, it really is about us um, building a, an extra parliamentary movement on the streets that can't be ignored and that just says to the powers that be, we're not going to cop this anymore. I have been distributing Green Left for many years and used to distribute Direct Action. Direct Action had a cover in 1985 about climate change. Mm. And despite the efforts of whether it's ourselves or Greta Thunberg or Amy Klein or all these people, in terms of raising consciousness about that and about social transformation to actually address 
the needs of climate action, uh, we haven't been able to do that. Why? It's not because it's not needed. It's because those who are in power now, their interests are otherwise. Rather than empowering those who benefit from this current situation, we empower those who want to make that leap from the realm of necessity to the realm of freedom. Um, I don't have any hope. Our kind of economics says if you have the resources, if you have the people, if you have the skills, then there's no question about how you pay for it. We can always find the money because the Australian Federal Government cannot run out of dollars. So does that give you some form of hope? Uh, look, I don't, I don't doubt that that's all possible. I just don't think the will is there. I just... I, I'm sure it's possible. It's got to be cheaper to do the right thing than it is to continue down this ridiculous blinkered path. It's got to be cheaper to do <laughs> to build a fast rail 20 years ago instead mm. of 20 years in the future. Mm. I'm sure it's financially doable. Mm. I just don't believe that the political will is there. So where your lack of hope um, sort of centres on is this big question of the political will. Maybe, maybe, uh, and it, it's it's big because it's not just Australia, is it? I mean, it's it's everywhere. It's polarisation in a lot of different countries. Um, I don't have any hope. Mm. I'm glad I'm old. Oh. And and I um, appreciate you being honest with me as well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I have some issues with MMT, but... Uh, Ooh, but um, we could get into that <laughs> <okay>. as well. <laughs> um, but um, it's become reasonably popular in the last few years, and I think it, it does actually sort of um, shine a bit of a light on all this stuff of um, governments crying poor. A lot of the times it cries poor, that's just totally dishonest. And we can see it especially now that, you know, $380 billion submarines, when, you know... People were asking for an increase in um, job seeker allowance, but um, then it can just pull out of the hat 380 billion. And um, I guess in terms of the previous government, where they were talking about the absolute necessity of having a surplus and doing the usual crying poor thing, um, when the pandemic hit, they suddenly you know come up with just billions of dollars appeared from. Nowhere. I think one of the reasons that through the pandemic, I think MMT became popular because it became so obvious that all this crying call from governments, not just Australia, but all around the world, it was all total, total dishonesty. There is a limit on society's resources and what can be done. Um, and I think MMT recognises that mostly in terms of its effect on inflation. We would probably share an understanding that the Australian Federal Government can never run out of dollars because it creates the dollars and what is the limit is the real resources. Um, but you yeah. said you had a disagreement with MMT, so I'd love to hear what that is. Um, I, I think one issue I'd have with it, it has a bit like naivety, which I think comes from the Keynesianism as well in that... Um, it does tend to get put forward as like, this, you know, this is a really good idea, you know, if we just tell everyone about this idea, um, the government will obviously see what a great idea is and implement it, which unfortunately ignores the whole issue that um, class is, is an issue that we live in a class society and they don't want to go get in money to poor and helping people get jobs. I guess one thing that's useful that's connected to the jobs guarantee as well is using this money which can be created to help people get work. Um, 
But again, it's sometimes a bit naive to think the government does want to do that because governments actually want unemployment. Unemployment is a tool. I know they often wring their hands about it and say, oh, isn't it terrible? If only we could find more jobs for people. But that's all dishonesty. Um, they actually want unemployment because it keeps uh, wages down. So I think that's what one issue I had with MMT, and that's a little bit naive in thinking that if only governments heard about this, they'd, they'd take it up. Well, no doubt I am a good representative of the naive MMT, but I have to say it is MMT itself that's pushing me more and more to the left. And um, we, we uh, certainly are very well aware that uh, there is the reserve army of the unemployed keeping wages and conditions down. I, I guess another issue I'd have potentially with MMT in that it, it is all about growth kind of in that it is using government money to, to use up society's resources more efficiently but um, it doesn't, in and of itself, um, you also need to you know, look at the kind of growth. I always think of it as MMT is like looking at, at the engine of the car and then what direction you drive the car in is a whole sort of different layer. And so you could drive the car to the right or you could drive it to the left sort of thing. When I first came across MMT, I, I used to think, oh, they always talk about maximising productivity. That sounds really yes. thoughtless. Mm. But um, I personally understand that as, as heading for a full employment economy, which basically means you're not locking anyone out of the economy through unemployment. And the employment can be, of course, reconstructed however we want. Through a job guarantee, you, you could actually start redesigning work from the bottom up. You know, if, if the job guarantee had a four-day week, then the private mm. sector would have to compete with that and offer a four-day week as well. Um, MMT is particularly when it's connected to the jobs guarantee, it is about maximising the use of society's resources, which we don't necessarily want to maximise the use of society's resources. Um, Why not? Uh, because, <laughs> because burning up you know, society's resources is what's kind of destroying the planet at the moment. So in particular, I mean, for other reasons as well, um, you may also want to, within that, rejig the economy a lot. So it's not growth for the sake of growth, type of thing, which I think is compatible with the version of MMT, but it doesn't tend to get considered so much. No, it doesn't get as much airtime. but I have to say I personally do not equate full employment with um, extra material throughput. Mm. So I think a lot of what they talk about with job guarantee jobs is um, jobs that uh, supplement the care economy as much as anything. So you're not displacing professional care workers, but you might be the person that goes in and reads a book at, in the nursing home or whatever. Mm. And so that is actually not resource intensive, potentially. Because, yeah, certainly care work is one of the things I think a rational economy, like I'm talking about a socialist economy, which is based on democratic decision making, mm. you, you'd actually do is, is, is have more care work which makes people's lives better, but doesn't have the sort of, particularly the ecological footprint that, mm. that you know, compared to all cars and planes and roads and all that sort of thing does. To me, it just sounds like there's a lot of overlap. And that's kind of why I came along. That was my motive to come along today, was to see what kind okay. of overlap is there between the MMT world and the eco-socialist world. Right, okay. Yeah, no, I think there is. Certainly in terms of more immediate... Um, uh, things we support. I think as a socialist, you want to eventually, you know, reorganise society quite radically and take away um, 
the entire sort of profit motive and you know nationalisation un under democratic control, um, which MMT doesn't really talk about, but on the way to reaching more radical you know, structural change, um, MMT can sort of solve, or probably not solve, but help some of those issues like unemployment and funding things which governments currently dishonestly claim that they can't. Well, thank you for stopping. No worries. Have a good Have conference. A <laughs> thank you. You're with Anne and Kev on Radio MMT. At 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. And wherever you get your podcasts. Economics for the rest of us. Let's head to our conversation with co-host of Green Left Radio, Jacob Andrew Wather. Well, heterodox economics is a broad church, which offers a variety of alternatives to the economics that we hear day in, day out in the mainstream media. And 3CR Radio is one of the few media outlets in Australia which gives people the opportunity to hear regular programming from all these different perspectives. As we all know, sitting behind the poly crisis, this crisis of the climate and this crisis of housing and you name it, Sitting behind all this is the way we do our economy. And this is just a human-made structure, and often it gets called capitalism. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome Jacob Andrew Wather, a fellow 3CR presenter, to our little corner of the airwaves here at Radio MMT. So thanks for joining us today, Jacob. Yeah, thanks for having me on the program. Well, you are the host of another 3CR radio program called Green Left Radio. So tell us more about your program and when people can hear it. Green Left Radio is very much uh, the 3CR program of um, the Green Left newspaper and publication. The general kind of focus of Green Left is it's an attempt to kind of build the left, as in the socialist sort of movement. Um, we attempt to hear from activists on the ground who are involved in campaigns. Mm -hmm. um, it also attempts to present, I guess, a socialist perspective on political events, whether it's um, local politics, um, Australian politics or international politics. Um, and then I guess the other element of Green Left Radio is just like Green Left. I mean, Green Left first started in 1991. You know, the whole idea of Green Left is about very much trying to link up uh, the workers' movement, which is generally associated with socialist politics and linking up with the environment. Um, so, yeah, we're wanting to contribute towards, you know, building a, a mass movement that can actually take on all those issues, but also lay the basis for a fundamental revolutionary change of mm. society. So when can people hear Green Left on the radio? Um, they can hear Green Left Radio every Friday morning from 7am uh, to 8.30am. It's going to be an early bird. Yeah. <laughs> And via the podcast. Okay. I guess I reached out to you because um, I wanted to continue my exploration of the commonalities and the differences between MMT's approach and the eco-socialist approach. And these critiques of MMT seem to boil down to the fact that MMT has no theory of change. So I'm just wondering, Jacob, whether you would share those critiques 
I'm generally trying to come from, I guess, a political perspective. I mean, I'm no expert on economics. And so very much the framework I'm coming from when I would appraise uh, MMT or critique it is very much from, is this going to advance, you know, working class struggle and social movements and political campaigns? Mm. Um, This question around MMT having no fury of change, from the perspective of of an eco-socialist like myself, we see that a lot of the fundamental issues in, in society, the root of it is very much the system of capitalism. The fact that our political system is very much ruled by by capitalists, um, also known as the bourgeoisie. Um, and I guess my sort of issue, I guess, with what MMT has sort of offered, I, I feel that the whole idea of MMT, I think, actually sidesteps the question of of power. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that the capitalists control, you know, the means of production, etc. As socialists, our theory of change is very much that we need to get the masses of the working class people together because we're the ones who produce all the wealth. Uh, our labour is what contributes to keeping society running. We want to mobilise those masses to kind of challenge the power of the capitalist class. And I guess mm. my issue with MMT, and I think, you know, I'll other theories, not just sort of MMT, is I don't think that resolving the contradictions of capitalism um, boils down to some policy prescription. And I think that's a very sort of technocratic way of um, trying mm-hmm. to resolve the issues in society. I very much think that the way to resolve a lot of the challenges and issues in capitalism is actually building working class power from below. Mm. And so I think that's where MMT is sort of lacking because I think MMT is a bit silent on those questions of political power and mobilising the working class. Actually, MMT is vocal about its silence in a way in that I have heard MMTers say that it is politically agnostic and that it is simply looking at the plumbing of how the monetary system within capitalism works. And so I guess... um, why would, as a socialist, would you not see MMT as simply a tool? Because isn't it to your advantage to understand how a system works if you're wanting to achieve system change? Yeah, I do think you know, for us socialists and those who are campaigning for fundamental social change, it is actually important to understand the different policies and the different sort of political economic sort of frameworks that underpin, especially when economics is put forward by those who are sort of in power, where they kind of try to say that ordinary people can never sort of understand this and mm-hmm. we, we know what's best in terms of <laughs> policy because you obviously heard things like government say, you know, we have to do this, we have to cut this. We have yeah, to cut- we're running out of money. We can't afford to spend on aged care or whatever it is. Yeah. Now, that's where I sort of see, you know, there is, there is a certain sense of value in MMT because I think probably one thing that both Marxist and MMT advocates would probably agree with is this sort of question of the government, the role of the government and the question of money. Now, when you have these neoliberal governments, you know, putting forward this idea that they have to balance the books, Mm -hmm. they have to balance the state like it's a household and they can't operate beyond their sort of means. um, We completely agree with the argument that, no, the government isn't actually a household. Mm. In a sense, when governments say that they don't want to invest money in X, Y, and Z. It's actually more of a political statement than it is a statement of economics. Um, They're committed to this political idea that the state should not be playing any role in investing in public services. But at the same time, they do believe that the the state needs to play a role into intervening in the market. Mm -hmm. 
think about the context of Australia, the fact that we give billions of dollars in subsidies to fossil fuel corporations. Those governments are clearly taking a position on the economy that the government has to provide some form of money to, to these corporations. But, you know, that has nothing to do with balancing the books per se. Right, right. I would definitely agree with that analysis. And, um, you know, what you were saying, in fact, is something that I feel like I heard a lot of people at the conference say, and I was impressed that a lot of people at the conference did seem completely unsurprised that the government has a greater capacity to spend than what it lets on. And so I guess I'm wondering how you are coming to that conclusion because we come to that conclusion via an understanding that the Australian federal government can never run out of dollars. And so what it can run out of are resources. And so the limit on the spending then is the inflation uh, if you get to the limit of your resources. Our analysis, I guess, as socialists is, you know, we're coming from the perspective that capitalism is, especially when you're living in the global West, it is a very productive system. It has accumulated massive amounts of wealth. You know, we live in a world where we produce more food than what can feed people, yet there's lots of people starving. Mm. So the reason why we would have this perception that the government has greater capacity to spend than what it lets on is simply because we examine you know, a country like Australia and the amount of productivity that it actually produces. Um, you know, there should be a tax on mining. That wealth has not been, none of that has gone to communities. None of that has gone to ordinary people. So what we do with MMT is we analyse the creation of money and its distribution and the effect that it has on productivity through an economy. Essentially, we're looking at the distribution of resources through an economy and what role currency plays in that. And with a better understanding of how currency is used, comes a better understanding of how it should and could be used. So a lot of what you just said then about uh, we need to tax the rich more so that we can distribute those resources is something that we would fundamentally disagree with because it's not the money that needs redistributing, it's the the resources. Uh, and that doesn't need to be done through taxation. So I, I guess the issue that I have with a lot of the discussions that I've had with socialists, et cetera, is, is that they don't properly understand the monetary system and how it's utilised. And, and we hear this when we hear people say that we need to tax the rich to pay for spending. That's a fundamental misunderstanding of how the economy actually works. Uh, this question of taxation then, what effect do you think taxation has on the distribution of resources in an economy? I think the capitalist system, it very much kind of exists to maintain capital accumulation, i.e. billionaires and capitalists, they have to keep accumulating more and more profit. They have to accumulate more and more capital. Basically, it's either do or die. There'll be capitalists who will kind of die off in that kind of system. It's basically a brutal kind of marketplace where mm. they're constantly kind of competing to <laughs> to accumulate capital. And I think as socialists, that's where we sort of think the question, I guess, of taxation is still quite an important one. Now, when you go back to the COVID-19 period, uh, the government spent uh, a lot of money, a massive investment in social services, et cetera, to protect people's income during, during the pandemic. But the policy at that time very much protected uh, a lot of the profits of, of the capitalists. And in fact, uh, a lot of statistics show that a large section of capital, including the likes of Amazon, that actually accumulated massive profits um, through that period. That capital accumulation plays, I think, a very dangerous sort of role because it's, it's what contributes to environmental sort of destruction. And I guess I sort of remain 
unconvinced by MMT in terms of being able to sort of sidestep that question of capital accumulation. You know, if governments sort of didn't implement taxation and just um, decide that they could just sort of print money, capital would still be getting accumulated in that system um, and it could contribute to all sorts of problems such as overproduction, inflation and so on. So I think that's for socialists, that's where I see there's a very important role um, of this question of taxation. Uh, Are you saying that taxation is required to drain uh, excess profit from uh, those who are earning too much? I do think that the question of capital accumulation is is an important one, and I don't think it can necessarily be sidestepped. Uh, I wouldn't say that MMT is sidestepping that issue. Uh, I would say that MMT analyzes and identifies how that occurs quite clearly. As, As I was saying previously, if all private profits come from government spending, then we can follow the money the money trail. We can see where it started and where it ended. So if we see government spending into the economy and we see that money filtering its way through the economy and ending up disproportionately in certain hands, we're able to identify that. We're able to say that that's public money that, uh, that Amazon's got, that all of these large organisations that have accumulated a disproportionate amount of wealth have accumulated that through public spending. Now, how you then address that becomes a question of your ideology, which is to say, do you think that's fair or do you think it should be distributed more evenly? And um, at that stage, you take your MMT hat off and, and you make your statement. But under, understanding how the money got from A to B is kind of crucial because if if the people who are making large profits uh, believe that, that it's theirs, that it's their ingenuity, their work, their whatever, uh, that allowed them to keep what they regard as private money, you have a harder argument than if you say that money you got is public money uh, and you don't deserve to have so much of it. Would that help you in your uh, in your attack <laughs> on the um, uh, on the uber wealthy to explain to them that the resource that they have has come to them from governments from from public spending? I think that is a kind of very good kind of point to make, especially when you look at the question of of profit. In actual fact, the government does play a, a major role in protecting a lot of the profits of the capitalists. But I guess I don't see the government or the state as a neutral body. In a sense, if the state is upholding um, the sort of profits of, of corporations and capitalists, it's doing what, what it's meant to be doing under the capitalist system. Because let's say if the government's um, just decided that, no, we're not letting you turn all that profit, uh, I think those governments would face a lot of undermining from the capitalists. Because, you know, as a, as a socialist, this question of power is very important. Um, and I don't think it's just simply a question of changing policy. But I do think, you know, I think as socialists, we're also happy to, you know, work with um, economists that are putting forward those viewpoints, because I think they are important to sort of challenge the dominant neoclassical kind of economics, which um, those economic theories are only developed in wanting to justify the existing status quo. Yeah, I think we would definitely have the same take on the orthodox economics. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev at 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne, Australia. One thing that we see very clearly is that money and monetary systems do require a central authority that has some coercive force. So we would say that money originates when you have a central authority that wishes to provision itself, that is, it wishes to take 
resources out of the private sector and put them into the public sector. For example, labour that goes into a military or labour that goes into public hospitals. And so we see the role, especially of nation states, as fundamental to the uh, implementation of monetary systems. Um, but I think I have had a tendency to, to take the policy reform approach and say, well, if we just used what we see as this public monopoly or this public utility of the monetary system, we could use it in the name of the public good. We could use it for workers as much as it's being used in the name of capital at the moment. I was just wondering if you could explain how you would see the state and the role of the state, you know, especially because currently we hear a lot about state capture these days, as though the state has been captured. Okay, so yeah, the viewpoint, I guess, of socialists is we live under a capitalist system. Jacob Andrew Wather. We don't think there has ever been a time where the state has not been captured. The state, it rules on behalf of those who have the wealth um, and those who, who have capital. Mm. And there's this sort of famous quote by Lenin, um, something along the lines of the state exists but to manage the, the affairs of the capitalist class. All the institutions that we see from from the courts to the existence of the monetary system, you know, the reserve banks, one classic example, all these things are engineered to ensure minority rule, to ensure that, you know, capitalists are not necessarily made accountable to the population. So we don't think it's possible to make capital just accountable to governments. So the state exists to maintain um, that status quo. Mm -hmm. However, on the other hand, um, why is it that socialist, um, why is it that there's obviously a lot of discussion around things like taxation? Why is there a lot of discussions around public housing and public services and so on? Well, okay, yes, the state is an oppressive institution, but also it's a product of <laughs> the class struggle that occurs within that state. So when you look at all the reforms, like we sort of analyse that as being the product of the fact that people have struggled against the injustices of, of the capitalist system and of the capitalist state and have forced those changes to be made. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we see the state as an inherently oppressive institution um, and it only very much exists to maintain the rule of the capitalists. From that, uh, might you say that the state is set up to protect the interests of the capitalist class, but it has to accommodate to some degree uh, some of the social requirements that a society needs, such as public housing and, and public health, public anything, that if it fails to meet certain criteria, it's going to find itself probably unelectable and out of, out of power. Even in um, uh, societies that don't operate as a democracy, there still has to be some social accountability. Yeah, at the end of the day, the capitalist state needs to have certain services and certain institutions to, um, to even maintain the illusion that we live in a fair society. Like that's all part of um, how the capitalist state functions. And we, we see things like the schools, the media, as all part of that same apparatus. Um, so what would be a socialist position on private property? Focusing on the important question of what socialists mean by private property, um, you know, the other term for private property is the means of production. Mm. So like anything that produces value in society, anything that produces the goods and the services, um, anything that produces wealth in this society, but they're all owned by a private individual or a private group of shareholders. So that's generally what we mean by uh, private property, individual ownership of the means of production. Mm. 
because yeah, when we're talking about private property, we're not talking about personal property. We're not talking about your toothbrush. We're not talking about the microphone that we're using to record this. <laughs> you know, the fundamental contradiction under capitalism is all forms of private property that are owned by capitalists, they generally require some form of social labor. They generally require um, workers to work together to producing that wealth. But of course, the, the private owner of capital is the one who appropriates all, all that. And so, yeah, what we want to do about it, um, private property needs to be appropriated collectively by the working class. People, they hear the appropriation of private property and they do think that you're coming from my TV and you're coming from my, uh, my house, but that's not what, what you're talking about. Yeah, you socialists, you can't take my toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, a common sort of refrain that's thrown against socialists. I've got a question which has as much to do with the education of Anne as anything. So I have had conversations with eco-socialist friends before who try to explain to me the difference between reformist reforms and revolutionary reforms. And I've kind of put the job guarantee into the revolutionary reform basket and of course, the job guarantee is something that we talk about often with MMT, which is this idea that the currency issuing government has the capacity to offer everyone a job at a livable, inclusive wage, and it could be meaningful work. And to me, this would change the landscape of work because the private sector would then be forced to match that or go one better. And so I'm just wondering, Jacob, if you would see any revolutionary potential with a job guarantee. To start off, I mean, on this question of revolutionary reforms and reformist reforms, um, that is often a bit of a debate, even amongst um, socialists. <laughs> okay. yeah, there often is a lot of debate around what is the best demand that we should be putting forward to the capitalist class. And I guess I do think there is a distinction that has to be made. There are reforms that challenge um, power of capital, and I think those are sort of reforms that have to be pushed climate energy policy, for example, I think would be a much more meaningful reform to fight and demand that the government directly invest into public renewable energy, mm -hmm. rather than saying, hey, I think you should give um, money to BAP to incentivize them to invest in renewable energy. Now, is it more revolutionary reforms really change the underlying power structure, whereas reformist reforms just make a gentler kind of capitalism. Is that another way of seeing it? That's possibly true. But I guess the question of reforms, though, is also the question of what also mobilises working class people, mm -hmm. um, what actually taps into the interests and the concrete wants that the working class trade unions or or mass organisations want to be sort of advocating for. That's also the other element to what would be defined as a radical reform. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's where you have debates amongst uh, socialists because, you know, we can sometimes have mass movements over quite, very quite minimal kind of reforms, but they can still be important because they set the foundation for future sort of struggles. Mm. I, I think of the example of the minimum wage fight in America, the $15 fight. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very good example because there might have been a much more radical kind of reform you could have put instead of a, a minimum wage increase to $15. But the fact that workers mobilised around that 15 now demand and won it, um, that gave them the confidence that maybe they can actually demand more. That's the important thing. I think socialists have to be constantly examining the concrete. Like it has to be focused on what's mobilising the working class, what is actually 
laying the foundation for future struggles because that's what opens up political space. Mm-hmm. So I guess going into the job guarantee, given the analysis that socialists have about the cause of unemployment under, under capitalism, the general Marxist perspective is unemployment is required under capitalism because they need a reserve army of labour. It's also the means by which capitalists uh, can avoid paying workers too high. They need to have that threat of of unemployment. Mm-hmm. I do think that if we were in a position where you could actually force the government to guarantee a job guarantee, um, there is a lot of progressive value to that. And I think the left does need to have an open discussion about what a job guarantee would look like. But obviously the thing is there are risk with any reform under capitalism. So I could easily just see a job guarantee in a country like Australia. It could easily be turned into a work for the dole scheme. It could easily be used to push down wages. But the thing is, as socialists, we have a perspective that no reform is permanent under capitalism to begin with. And every reform that you win under capitalism is always fraught with all sorts of contradictions for the capitalist system. Mm, okay. So in a sense, the capitalists, they're always going to try and find ways of um, to make something that might be progressive into something regressive. And so I think the only thing that can counter against that is we just have to continue to mobilise. We, we can't we can't stay still, basically, in when we win reform. I really appreciate uh talking about the risks of reforms being wound back or somehow distorted and that's a conversation I haven't heard a lot in MMT circles and I've often thought a job guarantee could easily become co-opted either by a uh, unfriendly government introducing something that it calls a job guarantee which is not what we think a job guarantee is or by just simply tweaking it down the track for example all you would have to do is make it difficult for a participant to be able to negotiate what work they're doing under a job guarantee and you would start to turn it into a punitive program rather than a a program that supports workers. So how would you defend what we see as a job guarantee which would be inclusive and voluntary and so on from becoming co-opted into the capitalist regime of punishing the unemployed? the only sort of defence is that workers have to consistently be mobilising. We have to consistently have strong sort of trade unions. And But, I mean, the whole context of neoliberalism in the 1980s mm. was always about crushing that mass working class organisation that had built over the years. At the end of the day, I mean, as a socialist, we think the only solution to resolving that contradiction is revolution. Mm. Like, we just think that we can't sidestep the question of revolution. Um, We're socialists and we're revolutionaries because we think the only way that you can fundamentally resolve all the contradictions of capitalism is through a revolutionary overthrow of the system. Um, That's that's in the long term. That's always got to be at the back of our minds as socialists. I guess what I'm wondering is, in a post-capitalist economy or post-capitalist society, are we still going to have nation states? And if we're not, are we still going to have a monetary system? Are we still going to have money? And if we're not going to have money, are we still going to have markets? Could you even start to explain what the vision is for what the post-capitalist economy looks like? Um, the general sort of vision of, of a socialist and a communist sort of society is where everything is produced in common for the good of, of humanity. Jacob Andrew Wather. It's also a form of society where 
it's inherently democratic and people collectively come together to make the decisions on what needs to happen and what is necessary. I mean, if we're going back to the Communist Manifesto and what Marx writes, I mean, the whole idea of socialism, capitalism does create the conditions for it. Mm Mm-hmm whether you would sort of have nation states. Now, we want to get rid of the state. The only thing, though, is in terms of a transition stage of fighting to challenge the power of the capitalist class who very much control the state, socialists generally do have a vision and it's a a vexed kind of topic with lots of debates amongst socialists, especially with anarchists on this question. (laughs) But then, of course, when we have a workers' state, people are just producing things collectively and we go through that transition. It might take hundreds of years You might have a need to have some form of monetary system, but I think the idea is that eventually we wouldn't have the need for it. Mm. For example, public housing. Like, If we lived in a society where everyone had a right to basic necessities, etc., the only reason that we have things like the Department of Public Housing is a means by which to distribute those things under a capitalist system. But of course, if everyone has a right to housing, why do you need this bureaucratic state body like the, the Department of Housing? So yeah, eventually in a, in a transition to a social society, the need for those things would um, would not exist anymore. And that's what Marx kind of referred to as the withering away of the state. So mm. I, I don't have like a crystal ball. I don't know what that process looked like because I think <laughs> the most important framework for socialists and Marxists is very much what are we going to do to build independent working class power? Mm. And there's obviously a lot of discussion on what, what a future social society would look like, but you know, We think it's actually up to ordinary people when ordinary people start to be able to run society democratically. We don't know what what people are going to be capable of or how they would organise society. Mm. Thank you very much, Jacob, for spending a bit of your green left time over here at Radio MMT. Thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Jacob. One thing I came away with was this sense that we could learn more from the eco-socialists about how to deal with this roadblock that we call the lack of political will. I mean, I have to admit that even if we did change the public discussion from, you know, whether we can find the dollars to whether we have the resources, I think we'd still run into this problem of political will. Yeah. Because... We've got a system called capitalism, which has a structure that is always going to try and undo any any attempts to really reclaim the monetary system. It's always going to try and undo those things. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a battle between the short-sighted, greedy people and the more um, progressives, you know. Uh, well, there's a bigger bigger problem, which is the class struggle, not, not how do we tweak the monetary system. But the class struggle is you're talking about inequality. Mm. And if you understand how to tweak the system, you can redistribute uh, the resources and address inequality, and that will then address the class system. Mm. It's really about honing your strategy for reallocating resources from the 1% to the 99%. The other way of doing it is with um, uh, a revolution and kind of like destroy the, the system and, and put in place a new one. Now, if somebody has a really good idea of how to do that, I will be first on board and I will be there with my pitchfork and my flaming torch, no worries. But <laughs> um, And just because, you know, if we try and implement a job guarantee now that it might get corrupted, I don't think that's a reason not to fight for one. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And what what's becoming apparent is that after the, 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 the kind of Keynesian economics that we had 
collapsed in 1975 uh, and the neoliberals took over the system, Mm -hmm. they really sent us backwards and went back to the bad old days. And Mm. what should have happened is that the full employment programs that were developed as part of the Nugget Coombs white paper after World War II should have progressed into something like the job guarantee. Mm. A lot of the basic uh, fundamentals of the job guarantee were in existence. Uh, Of course, these programs needed refinement and it should have headed in the direction of a job guarantee, but it all got wound back. Why would you wind back unemployment benefits and not head for that full employment with a job guarantee if there wasn't a class struggle? So it is evidence for what the socialists are talking about, I think, but it's not evidence not to struggle for a job guarantee. Yeah, yeah. Look, and a job guarantee uh, would be a direct attack on the. Uh, Shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> would be a direct attack on the, on the neoliberal idea that um, unemployment is there to uh, put downward pressure on wages. They say to control inflation, but the real reason is to increase profits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, robo debt really reveals how under attack employment benefits have become. And yet, I don't think that's a reason to say that we should never have fought for unemployment benefits in the first place. Yeah, that's no reason to not start trying to push things in the right direction. Well, we've just about run out of time again, Kevin. Okay, good on you, Anne. We'll catch you in a couple of weeks' time. See you then. You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests. And we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his mmted.org, educating masses on modern monetary theory. And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.